Well, good evening, saints. Thanks. We have a truly epic evening for you tonight. I'm talking about a Monday night that is of epic proportions for LCM this evening. We will be covering Jeremiah 5. I'm glad you're here too, Paul. Jeremiah 5 through Jeremiah 6. Verse 17, our king in his infinite majesty and strength has not been slowed, subdued, or subverted by the dark days that we live in. No, in fact, he's on the move, and he is demonstrating his great and divine power through his people. Man, it's a good day to be a saint of the living God, to be a son in his house. We want to tell you tonight that we can feel his true body beginning to awaken. We are awakening while the world slumbers before the slaughter. Tonight, we will not be caught unaware of the enemy's schemes. But rather, we will be sober-minded and on the offensive for God's plan. We will be enacting his plan on the earth. We want to assure you in advance, you have been. Somebody say, have been. Have been. You are. And you will be prepared for every mission our good Father sends you on. Saints, it's time to silence your phones. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts. We are entering into the campaign our commander has aimed our congregation at for months on end. The goal, the talios, that which we set out to reach. Are you ready? Yes! Now come on, are you ready? Why don't we pray here and then we'll recap a few things as we get started. Does anybody in the room feel stirred by the Almighty God to pray in light of what he is doing in our midst? Father, we thank you. Yes. Yes, mighty one. That you will anoint their lips, mighty God, that your words will be upon their mouths as they speak to us tonight, Lord. Engage us as we engage your word. Move us by your very ruhat tonight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, before we we begin, we want to recap a few of the themes that we've been covering in the book of Jeremiah so far. We've been covering the topic of national destinies and individual choices. Simply put, nations are destined by God to fulfill their roles in his plan for creation and the redemption of humanity. There is one nation on earth that is predestined by God. What is that nation? Israel. They're the one nation that's predestined to salvation. The other nations are either destined to align with God's people and God's plan, and can I tell you there's few of those, or their destiny is to try to thwart God's plan. Now, individuals within those nations have a choice whether to join in their national destiny or to escape it altogether. For example, you can be a Jew in Israel and choose to join into Israel's national salvation, or 
You can be a Jew and avoid Israel's national salvation. The choice is entirely up to the individual. If it's us, you are a Gentile and you can choose to join into your national destiny. Which I got to say, our national destiny doesn't look very good. But thank God we have a choice to either choose to go with the flow or we can avoid it. The trends usually of national destinies are going away from God. We have a choice. We don't have to take part in that. Amen? Amen. We have also been learning about God's discipline. How it is intended to correct his nation to ensure that they stay on the intended path. If a generation of his nation, generation of his nation refuses his divine correction, then the level of discipline will increase based on their own actions. Which brings us back to last week. We learned that Jeremiah saw that Israel had become tohu vavohu. This is a hearkening back to the creation story in Genesis chapter 1. Saying that Israel has reverted to the way things were at the very beginning, before creation. This was not only an indicator of where they were in Jeremiah's day, it was bringing to mind that a solution would occur just as it had in the creation story. Oh, come on now. Now lastly, we've been covering that God will never break his promise. Ever break his singular covenant. You guys remember the singular covenant? Not many, but one that was built upon. That he made with a singular family. The family of Israel. He promises to destroy the nation, but also reiterates that he will never completely destroy them. Just like the Tohu Vavohu scenario my brother just described, there was always the Spirit of God hovering over, looking to bring life out of judgment. Our God will remove the faithless individuals within his nation, even if they represent the vast majority of the nation. But a remnant will always exist. And saints, i got to tell you, us along with Israel joined with him, I find hope in that reality of our God. Look, I think at this place it would be best if we read our text for this evening. Brother Linton, if you would help us by picking up in Jeremiah 5, 1... And going all the way through to 6.17. Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem. Look around and consider. Search through her squares. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, I will forgive the city. Although they say, as surely as the Lord lives, still they are swearing falsely. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You struck them, but they felt no pain. You crushed them, but they refused correction. They made their faces harder than stone and refused to repent. I thought, these are only the poor. They are foolish, for they, they do not know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. So I will go to the leaders and speak to them. Surely they know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. But with one accord, they too have broken off the yoke and tore off the bond. Therefore, a lion from the forest will attack them. A wolf from the desert will ravage them. A leopard will lie in wait near their towns to tear to pieces any who venture out. For their rebellion is great, and their backsliding is many. Why should I forgive you? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by gods that are not gods. I supplied all their needs, yet they committed adultery. 
and thrown to the houses of the prostitutes. They are well-fed, lusty stallions, each name for another man's wife. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Go through her vineyards and ravage them, but do not destroy them completely. Strip off her branches, for these people do not belong to the Lord. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly unfaithful to, to me, declares the Lord. They have lied about the Lord. They said, he will do nothing. No harm will come to us. We will never see sword or famine. The prophets are but wind, and the word is not in them. So let what they say be done to them. Therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty says. Because the people have spoken these words, I will make my words in your mouth a fire, and these people the wood it consumes. O Israel, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, I am bringing a distant nation against you, an ancient and enduring nation, a people whose language you do not know, whose speech you do not understand. Their quivers are like an open grave. All of them are mighty warriors. They will devour your harvest and food, devour your sons and daughters. They will devour your flocks and herds, devour your vines and fig trees. With the sword, they will destroy the fortified cities in which you trust. Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not destroy you completely. And when the people ask, why has the Lord our God done all this to us? You will tell them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your own land, so now you will serve foreigners in a land not your own. Announce this to the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence? I made the sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. But these people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They have turned aside and gone away. Gone away. They do not say to themselves, Let us fear the Lord our God, who gives autumn and spring rains in season, who assures us of the regular weeks of harvest. Your wrongdoings have kept these away. Your sins have deprived you of good. Among my people are wicked men, who lie in wait like men who snare birds, and like those who set traps to catch men. Like, like cages full of birds, their houses are full of deceit. They have become rich and powerful and have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not plead the case of the fatherless to win it. They do not defend the rights of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority, and my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? Bleed for safety, people of Benjamin. Bleed from Jerusalem. Sound the trumpet in Tekoa. Raise a signal over Beth-Hakarim. For disaster looms out of the north, even terrible destruction. I will destroy the daughter of Zion, so beautiful and delicate. Shepherds with their, with, with their flocks will come against her. They will pitch their tents around her each tending his own portion. Prepare for battle against her. Arise, let us attack at noon. But alas, the daylight is fading, and the shadows of evening grow long. So arise, let us attack at night, and destroy her fortresses. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. Cut down the trees and build seed ramps against Jerusalem. This city must be punished. It is filled with oppression. As a well pours out its water, so she pours out her wickedness. Violence and destruction resound in her. Her sickness and wounds are ever before me. Take warning, O Jerusalem, or I will turn away from you and make your land desolate so no one can live in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Let them glean the remnant of Israel as thoroughly as a vine. Pass your hand over the branches again like one gathering grapes. To whom can I speak and give warning? Who will listen to me? Their ears are closed so they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no pleasure in it. But I am full of the wrath of the Lord, and I cannot hold it in. Pour it out Ooh. on the children in the street, Man. and on the young men gathered together. Both husband and wife will be caught in it. The old, those weighed down with years, their houses will be turned over to others, together with their fields and their wives. When I stretch out my hand against those who live in the land, declares the Lord. From the least to the greatest, all agree for gain. Prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, where there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their lotion conduct? No, they have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroad and look. Ask for the ancient past. Ask where the good way is and walk in it. And you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. I appointed watchmen over you and said, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But you said, we will not listen. I promise that is not going to be our response tonight. Look, if you've been with us for the last four chapters of Jeremiah... We're making a promise to you. Tonight is going to be the best yet. If you're a guest here tonight, and we have some guests here, then you're going to, you came to the right meeting at the right time. Tonight we're going to connect major, major themes in all of the books of the Bible. We're going to connect chapters in ways that you have never seen before. We're going to get into ancient paths. We're going to recap over some things Jeremiah has previously spoken. But I promise tonight you will not be left the same way that you come in. Amen. You guys excited? Yeah. Yeah. We got a lot of ground to cover. So we're going we're gonna to move and uh, you guys stay with us as we read in verse 1 again. Go up and down the streets of Jerusalem. Look around and consider. Search through a square. If you can find but one person who deals honestly and seeks truth, I will give the secret. So last week in chapter 4, we saw that Jeremiah used the language of Genesis 1. Israel was tohu vavohu. It was destruction and chaos, but there would be life coming out of it. Chapter 5, in the Peshat, say Peshat, Peshat. is borrowing when it says, if you can find one person who deals honestly and seeks the truth, where's the last time you've heard that in the Bible? That's Genesis 18. Come on. This is Abraham's conversation about Sodom and Gomorrah. That they would be destroyed, but Lot would be saved. There would be destruction on a city, but a remnant would be saved out of the destruction. Yeah. Look, 
All prophecy is a pattern with roots in the past, application in the present, and instruction for the future. It'd be best not to look at prophecy as just a singular time only pertaining to a singular event. All prophecy draws on conclusions from the past, and you can see that all throughout the Hebrew Bible, it all has application in their present time, in the time of Jeremiah, and also our present time. And it gives us instruction to the future because prophecy is a repeating pattern. You see it over and over again. The question we want to ask ourselves here is how do the people of God become as deserving as Sodom? Basically, what, what Jeremiah is referencing here is telling them that they've become like Sodom and what happened to Sodom will happen to you. Look, we've been studying in the last four weeks that the problem that God has with his people is that they have polluted themselves as well as their children, all the while saying, we are not defiled. We're not defiled. And they only returned to the Lord in pretense alone. They never actually came to him in truth, justice, and righteousness. The false worship they engaged in is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah's homosexuality. You think homosexuality is bad. Worse in God's eyes is when you turn to him only in pretense, in words alone and not in actions. Look, Proverbs 25, 26 says, like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. Well, if that's true about a righteous man, what, what does that mean for a righteous nation? A nation that is prince with God. A nation that has muddied themselves or polluted themselves is like a polluted well. Israel is now a muddied spring that has totally given way to wickedness and wicked people. You get the sense that there is no one. God's telling Jeremiah, go and look. Can you find one righteous person? When they heard this from Jeremiah, you have to understand what they, they heard there. When they heard this reference yeah. to Sodom and Gomorrah, they must have been shocked that Jeremiah is equating them to Sodom and Gomorrah. Look, when you have false worship, when there's false worship abound, you are shocked to actually hear God make a statement about your current condition. And that is what's happening here. Consider briefly as we keep moving, why a polluted well is worse than open sin like homosexuality. With a well, you're expecting to find life-giving water. Yeah. And you go to drink it because you need to be revived. Mm -hmm. And then you find poison or pollution in it. Wow. Saints, this is why God hates religious wickedness. And there's mercy for tax collectors and whores who recognize their state but will come in. You'll see this build as we continue to verse 2. Wow. Verse 2, brother. Although they say, as surely as the Lord lives, still they are swearing falsely. Also, last week, we read that God promised that if they say this in a faithful, just, and righteous way, as surely as the Lord lives, then he would speed the promise given to Abraham. Last week, we studied that our obedience speeds up the promise of God, but that our disobedience slows down that same promise. Yeah. We applied it to our own lives last week. Our obedience and the things that we know are right, they actually speed up God's promises in our own lives. And our disobedience actually works against us to slow down the good things that the Lord has in store for each one of us. 
Obviously, the nation of Israel, these people, this generation, they are just responding in pretense. Just like in, in chapter 3 and verse 10 where it said, I was calling to them, but the words that were coming out of their mouth, they were just words and their heart was not attached to it. Their hearts haven't changed. And this fact, now that we're in chapter 5 and into chapter 6, it did not escape God's notice. Speak up in verse 3. O Lord, do not your eyes look for truth? You struck them, but they felt no pain. You crushed them, but they refused correction. They made their faces harder than stone and refused to repent. Jeremiah is wrestling with what is happening here. You have to remember, he is an Israelite. He's surrounded by his family, by people that he grew up with. But the reality is becoming clear to him, and it will continue to become even clearer. He sees what God is doing. He is correcting them. But the people have been avoiding it. They haven't been heeding it. The end result of this will only bring about God's judgment because they did not heed the prior corrections, and it's escalating. Let's read verse 4 and 5. I thought... Neither only the poor. They are foolish, for they do not know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. So I will go to the leaders and speak to them. Surely they know the way of the Lord, the requirements of their God. But with one accord, they too have broken off the yoke and tore off the bond. You gotta love Jeremiah's honesty here. I mean, don't we all do this whenever God's speaking? Let me go investigate myself and see if this is really true amongst all the people. Look, Jeremiah's assumption. These are only the poor. They are foolish. He was wrong. (laughs) This internal wrestling that you're seeing in Jeremiah was wrong. And God proclaimed it earlier. It took Jeremiah to wrestle that out for himself. All were guilty. Not just the poor. Not just the, uh, the learned. The leaders. All were guilty. We have already covered in past weeks that they have broken their yokes and bonds. Both, all alike, priests, prophets, they broke their yokes and bonds. They set aside their affections for the Lord as their husband in favor of other lovers. But now you can see it's breaking God's heart. And now it's starting to break Jeremiah's heart. God is telling Jeremiah what's happening. He's investigating for himself. And the more he investigates, it starts to break his own heart. Because again, he's starting to feel what the Lord feels here. And for the first time, he's starting to see it's actually true the more he investigates. Man, sometimes it's good to see what the Lord sees, right? You'll feel what the Lord feels. Let's pick up in verse 6. Therefore, a lion from the forest will attack them. A wolf from the desert will ravage them. A leopard will lie in wait near their town to tear to pieces any who venture out. For their rebellion is great and their backsliding is many. This is one of the things that we also covered last week. You guys remember the lion from the north? Yeah. You remember the picture that we put up there? Looking at the Fertile Crescent and Babylon coming from the north, that is their point of entry from the very north of Israel. We saw the geography and why that was the only possible route. But the point of this scripture uh, about the lion, the wolf, the leopard, the predatory beasts that it's talking about, is that uncorrectable sin. It's not sin that is, is just something that they caught themselves in and they need a, correct, a course correction. This is something that the Lord has been speaking to them for a while now. Mm. And they refuse to correct. They refuse to repent. So they're in a state of uncorrectable sin now. 
it brings these Gentile predatory nations. These nations are different than anything else that you would think about because when the Gentile predatory nation comes in, they come in with no limits on the severity of injury that they inflict. We're going to get more into this in the, the following passages of scripture that we're going to read tonight, but you need to remember that when Gentile nations come in to afflict vengeance, they're going to go above and beyond what is even in God's mind of what could happen. Yeah. Let's continue in verses 7 and 8 and go through 9, please. Why should I forgive you? The children have forsaken me and sworn by gods that are not gods. I supplied all their needs, yet they committed adultery and thronged to the houses of prostitutes. They are well fed, lusty stallions, each name for another man's wife. Should I not punish them for this, declared the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? Saints, there are so many levels here that we don't have time to cover. You see they're desiring other men's wives, and by the end of the passage, you'll see that their wives are given away. Even here, dialogue between God and the prophet, and he's helping him understand the gravity of the situation. Should I not avenge myself? But the point that we want to cover this evening, after weeks in Jeremiah, is that forgiveness is based on connectedness to him. You remember yesterday, we were covering being attached to the vine? Yes. They have the hope for forgiveness, but it comes from being connected to the right place. Yes. Provision, being supplied from God, oh, yeah. is based on connectedness oh. to Him. Amen. Adultery is the antithesis. It is breaking connection with Him in favor of another lover. And that's what God is highlighting here. It would be easy to read these lines about Israel and think that it only applies to them. But we're not going to do that tonight. (laughs) Certainly, when we abandon our own connectedness, we face the same punishment. We must be connected to our Father. Listen, Judah was said to be more guilty than Israel because they saw Israel punished, and yet they continued in their own sin and their own way. They replicated what they had watched in Israel with no heed. Now consider this, more than that, we, we have both Israel and Judah's example. How guilty do you think it makes us when we continue in our own way after watching their example? Let's pick up in verse 10. Go through her vineyards and ravage them, but do not destroy them completely. Strip off her branches, for these people do not belong to the Lord. Man, go through the vineyards, strip off the branches, for these People do not belong to the Lord. Man, you should be calling to mind yesterday's message, Miracle of Fermentation. What a message that was, wasn't it? That this is the background for John 15. The Father is the gardener. Israel the nation, with its promise, typified by their king, Yeshua, is the vine. And the individuals within the nation which was Jesus' audience in John 15, they are the branches. The gardener, he will cut off the branches that are in the vine that don't bear fruit. So this is not talking about the world and the lost. This is talking about those branches, meaning Israelites, that are connected to the vine, meaning Israel or Jesus, He will cut off those that do not bear fruit, but he will never change the vine. You're going to see here in a a little while 
that he's going to talk about cutting down the vine, but not completely. The vine will never, ever be cut down, but branches in the vine will be cut off or pruned. Every broken branch will be filled with another branch, a graft in. This is the background for Romans 11. And those graftins do not replace the original branches. In fact, the natural branches are easily put back on, but most likely that seems to be another generation. Whenever a generation of branches seem to be broken off, God is easily capable of grafting, regrafting in a natural branch. And that is the base for Paul's writing in Romans 11. Psalm 80 also draws on the same imagery to envision the Son of Man at the right hand of God restoring the nation of Israel. This is what Jesus and Paul were reading to come to teach the Spirit-inspired words contained in the Newer Testament. Wow. The vine is always, say always, always, Israel or their Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua. The branches are individuals within the nation Israel and within Messiah Jesus. But just because a Gentile is in Messiah Jesus, that doesn't make it a natural branch, does it? No. no. The natural branches are Israelites within the nation or their Messiah. And the Father is always the gardener. Look, we want to read to you Psalm 80, just to kind of refresh what we went over yesterday. Y'all want to do that? Yes. Look, Psalm 80, verse 8 says, About God, you, bought a vi you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Who is that vine that is being spoken of here? Israel. Well, in this verse, the psalmist is referring to the nation Israel. But being that you are good Bible students, do you also recognize that as Israel was brought out of Egypt as a son, as a prince with God, God also brought his son Yeshua out of Egypt? Yeah. You see, they are one and the same. Come on. Jesus typifies the nation itself. If you skip down to verse 14 in Psalm 80, the psalmist is writing because there's been a tragedy. Return to us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine, the root you, your right hand has planted, the sun you have raised up for yourself. So you have to ask yourself, is this talking about Israel or Jesus? Yes. Yes. The Father is the gardener. And he is watching over his vine. Always. The word says he watches over his nation Israel. Israel the nation and Jesus the king of Israel are the vine. Verse 16 goes on to say. Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke your people perish. Is that final? No. Because the next verse says let your wreck. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand. Come on. The son of man you have raised up for yourself. Praise God. Man, the nation is being cut down, but there still is a man at the right hand. The vine will never be cut down in entirety. Here in Psalm 80, the nation is experiencing discipline, but the son is still at the right hand of the gardener. The psalm goes on to say, that the people, the branches, will not turn away from him. Because God has his hand on the man at his right hand, the branches will never turn away. 
Man, every branch, Israelite, in Jesus the true vine, will be either pruned or destroyed, but the branches will never be cast off completely, and the vine will never be cut down completely. Amen. Man, that's good. If we stopped right there, that would be enough to preach on for the rest of our lives. Amen? Hey, let's pick up in verse uh, verse 11 as we continue on. They said, he will do nothing. No harm will come to us. We will never see the sword of our family. He will never, he will do nothing. He will do nothing. This is neither good nor bad. They're saying, hey, the Lord's there, but he's not going to move in any direction. We don't expect him to do anything about what we're doing. You know, something interesting that we noted today as we were diving into this, Zephaniah is a contemporary of Jeremiah. They're prophesying in a very similar time frame. And in Zephaniah 1.12, which we spoke about yesterday morning, the pastors preached about, it says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Wow. Dregs because nothing is happening. There is no movement. There is nothing going on to mix this wine up. The vine being Israel as a nation was transplanted from Egypt. It was a perfect vine. We couldn't emphasize that enough. There was nothing wrong with the way that the vine was planted. Nothing wrong with the way that the Lord established his vine at the beginning. The branches being the individual people, they were the ones that grew cold. They were the ones who lost their flavor, just like wine, unshaken, unstirred. The branches themselves were the ones that became complacent. Come on. This was characterized by them saying, them expecting, even them hoping a little bit (laughs) that the Lord would actually do nothing. Let's continue in verse 13. The prophets are but wind, and the word is not in them. So let what they say be done to them. Now this is going to be fun. We have a lot to cover this evening, and we're referring to concepts that we've laid down in the past. I'm asking you, can you hang with us? Yeah. Yeah. We've got some ground to cover, but your Bible students, and I know you can pick it up, that you'll follow us, that you'll go study it on your own. Are you ready to pick up a slight uptick in pace with me? Read verse 13 for me one more time. This is going to be fun. The prophets are but wind, and the word is not in them. So let what they say be done to them. There's a Hebrew word play going on here. The word ruach. The word ruach is wind in the passage. But ruach can also mean in Hebrew wind, breath, or spirit. And it depends upon the context. The context of this passage is the prophets. So typically... You would expect the meaning in any casual setting reading it as an original audience speaking Hebrew to be the usage of spirit. But it's a wordplay. These men are not filled with the spirit. They're filled with wind. <laughs> I have a slide for you from the Lundbaum Dictionary. Come on. The prophets are hot air. Hebrew contains a wordplay on Ruah. The expected meaning which will be spirit in context with prophets. They were moved of the spirit. However, instead of being filled with Yahweh's spirit, 
Jeremiah is saying they're windbags. They're filled with hot air. They do not have the spirit. You know what else it says? That they do not have the word. You would expect a prophet of God to have both the spirit and the word. And Jeremiah is saying they're filled with hot air and don't have either. Look, we're going to contrast this with Jeremiah in the following verses. Because he is not a windbag. He's not blowing hot air. He's a man who does have the word of the Lord. By the way, you remember earlier in verse 12 where the people said he will do nothing, no harm will come to us, we'll never see sword, we'll never see family. You know, like the uh, bumper sticker, business is good, life is great, nothing's ever hard. This offended God. It made him angry. The idea that he was unable to do anything good or bad for a man's life was spitting in his face. Pick up in verse 14 and we'll hear how Jeremiah interacts with the word and God's response to the people's statement. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, Lord God Almighty says. Because the people have spoken these words. What words? These, these words. These words. How about that? I will make my words in your mouth a fire and these people the wooden consumer. Because the people have spoken, he will do nothing. Because they were hoping that he will do nothing, God was offended, but he put his words in Jeremiah's mouth like a fire. And he was going to make the people the wood it consumes. Man, take that in contrast. The other prophets, who are nothing but windbags, God says, look, in the midst of all these windbags, I'm actually going to put a fire inside you, and you are going to consume all the fluff and filth that you are hearing. Man, there could not be a more pertinent word for us in this time. Look, keep going in verse 15, and you're going to start to pick up a little bit on Jeremiah's setting amongst the other prophets. O house of Israel, declares the Lord, I am bringing a distant nation against you, an ancient and enduring nation, a people whose language you do not know, whose speech you do not understand. This verse is absolutely packed with meaning. I want to bring out a couple phrases. Distant nation, ancient and enduring nation, people whose language you do not know, Speech you do not understand. We want to re-emphasize it. We're going to keep doing it tonight over and over again because it's an important point. All prophecy is a pattern with roots in the past, application in the present, right where they're standing, and also instruction for the future. This is a prophecy that is about their present condition. It also affects their future. But it has distinct ties as well with their past. The ancient nation that God is referring to, it has a language that is not understood. This reference is a reference to the Tower of Babel. All the way back to Genesis 11. It's an ancient nation that was not able to be understood. There's this ancient path of creation that we referenced back in chapter 4 of Jeremiah. Then in chapter 5, we referenced an ancient path of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, and we touched on that tonight. Now tonight, in this chapter, we're referencing an ancient path of the Tower of Babel, that what is now being referred to in this verse. These historical events that transpired all the way back in Genesis 11 at Babel, they were in the plain of Shinar. That should begin to click in your mind now that you understand where Babylon was and where Babylon's capital city was of the whole Babylon, 
Babylon was the capital city within the Babylonian Empire, situated right there in the plain of Shinar, where Babel was, back in Genesis 11. You see, actually, Babylon, Babylonia, the root word comes from the word Babel. God is referring to an ancient pattern to warn his people about their future. Let's continue in 16, and we're going to go all the way through 19. Their quivers are like, oak, like an open grave. All of them are mighty warriors. They will devour your harvest and food, devour your sons and daughters. They will devour your flocks and herds, devour your vines and fig trees. With the sword, they will destroy the fortified cities in which you trust. Yet even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not destroy you completely. And when the people ask, why has the Lord our God done all this to us? You will tell them, as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your own land, so now you will serve foreigners in a land not your own. Look, let me put this together in a succinct fashion. They said you can do nothing. You hear God's response to it. 16 and 17, he's saying what? they will do, as in the people who are coming to crush you. And he's describing what they are like. In verse 18 and 19, he's saying, what I will do. In the midst of that, I will not destroy you completely. I'm going to come very close, but not completely. Because you have served other gods in your own land, I'm giving you over to other gods where you can serve them in a foreign land out of mine. But he's using a dog on a leash to do it. You remember that from last week? Babylon is not a righteous nation. They're just used of God like a tool or like a hammer. I don't really care what my hammer's moral state is. I just care that it does what it's designed to do. The people, they are the ones that put themselves in this situation. God warned them in advance that it would happen. If they continued and persisted, this is the result like running through a stop sign. You're going to get hit eventually. (laughs) And he allows this to take place so that his people might be course corrected. The Babylonians, they were responsible for bringing in that course correction. They were responsible for it, but they were a lawless Gentile nation that did not abide by moral standards. And they would absolutely, unequivocally, do things that were unrighteous and take God's correction too far. Now, rest assured, like we mentioned last week, God will hold both parties accountable but he's using the circumstance to teach his people. You remember our Mosaic parameters. There was no difference between the covenants. The Mosaic parameters were building upon the original covenant. They were adding means for course correction to ensure that the original promise to Abraham still came about even if it was a sinful generation. Their election still stands. Remember, Leviticus 26 said that this would happen, that there would be destruction, but he would save some and he would bring about his promise anyway. This is our context. Pick up in 20 and 21. Announce this to the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. Clearly, they are suffering the effects of idolatry as outlined in Psalm 135. They have eyes but they don't see. They have ears But do not hear. Psalm 135 verse 15 through 18 says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but cannot speak. Eyes, but they cannot see. 
They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Look, they worship things that could not see or hear, and therefore they could not see or hear. That's astounding. They worship things that had no sight, no hearing, no vision, and they became just like them. You know, we say, we think that we don't have the level of idolatry that happened in ancient times, but I got to tell you, it's far worse because you actually can't see some idol in front of you. We worship idols like capitalism. Look, when you worship something like capitalism, when money is your God, then that is all you are reduced to is the more you can get and you start seeing less of the Lord and seeing more of the money you think you can get. When you worship success, you become a puffed up, prideful individual that success is everything. And then when you fail, it becomes all it comes crashing down in one big crash. Look, this this can't be any more true than it is about Islam. When you worship a satanic and demonic God like Allah, you become violent and you become wicked in every single way. You can see that happening all over the Middle East. When you worship sexual immorality, you become sexually immoral. It's not that hard to understand. You don't become sexually immoral just because it's a thing that attached to you. No, you are worshiping something that is making you into something else. It's also true of violence. When you worship violence, you become a violent person. When you worship pride, when you elevate sports, when you elevate all these grand achievements of men, then you reduce yourself to somebody that doesn't care anything about God. You care only about man's achievement. Look, the thing that that I see it the most, when you worship comfort and rest, when you worship your nap time, when you worship your your own laziness, you become a do-good-nothing couch potato that doesn't do anything for the Lord. Look, I'm not going to belabor the point. You can easily see that what you worship, you come, become just like. This ought to bring to mind the homiletic in the book of Revelation, and this should also serve as a warning for us. How many times have you heard in the book of Revelation, whoever has ears to hear? It's spoken to a people that are expected to be free from idolatry. It was spoken to the church of God. But the clear inference is that if you can't receive what the Lord is saying... Hear me. Hear what I'm saying right now. If you can't receive what the Lord is saying, it is because you are an idolater and you must repent immediately. If you cannot receive what God is saying through your pastors, if you cannot receive what God's saying through your elders, then there is a level of idolatry present. And you might not see it so clearly. You have to really dig down, pray, and ask the Lord, and He will show you. Look, Nick's going to read 1 Corinthians 14, 37. Through 38, and you're going to see Paul drawing on the same conclusion. It says, if anybody thinks he is a prophet, if anyone thinks he's a prophet, if he thinks he's spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. <laughs> if he ignores this, guess what happens to him? He himself will be ignored. Come on. Look, if you can't receive what a pastor is telling you, if you can't receive what a father in the faith is telling you, if you can't receive what a brother is instructing you with, it's the result of idolatry in your own life. It's idolatry that causes you to say, no, 
I can't receive that correction. Brothers, all the way up to fathers that we have in the faith, we want to emphasize that it does not matter the position that you're in. This applies to everyone in the body of Christ. Regardless of your position, regardless of your own perceived authority, you do very well to apply this in regard to anyone who's a leader in God's house, but especially to those who are fathers of the faith. Come on. Look, when we say God's speaking to us, you often think that it's somewhere off in the clouds or when you're driving by yourself. Oftentimes, God will speak to you th- from somebody in this room. Amen? Yeah. Amen. Amen. Verse 22, brother. 23, should, should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence? I made the sand a boundary for the sea, and everlasting barrier it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. But these people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They have turned aside and gone away. Look, rather than picking this apart, we want to tell you that Jesus echoes the exact same frustration. I have a slide for you that is just a couple references. Matthew 12, Matthew 16, and chapter 8. In each of these instances, they're asking for signs, and he calls them a wicked and adulterous generation. Yeah. You know why? Because he has already demonstrated all of the signs that you could ever need. He's holding the world together by his divine power. On that note, we have three Calvay Comers for you. You ready? Andrew, are you ready? Mr. Tisdale, you there? If the elements of creation obey the living God, how much more should his specially selected nation obey him? Oh, come on. If the specially selected nation should obey him, how much more should the Gentile Graftons that were saved by his divine mercy? He's holding the world together, people. If those specially selected branches could be burned, how much more wild graftons? Saints, we have reason for confidence in his majesty and reason for fear and trembling and obedience. He's both a loving God and one that does not owe us an ounce of proof beyond what he's already given us. Yeah. If the elements of heaven, elements of heaven, the nation of Israel, and the specially selected disciples is not enough of a sign that you should obey, we're really not sure what would be enough. There would not be a sign that could validate what is needed. You hear this all of the time where people are asking God to speak to them, to give them a sign, to repent. They're looking for something. The sign is that his mercy is still on you and you haven't been broken off of the vine this second already burned. Connect with him while you have the chance. Let's get verse 24 and 25. They do not say to themselves, let us fear the Lord our God, who gives autumn and spring rains in season, who assures us of the regular weeks of harvest. Your wrongdoings have kept these away. Your sins have deprived you of good. Your wrongdoings have kept these away. Your sins have deprived you of good. Man, there's nothing that deprives you of good faster than your own sin, isn't it? Look, the truth is, is that no loving father would continue to bless and provide for a child on the path of destruction. You might think it's loving to provide for a child when they're going their own way. Like, if they just see the goodness, they'll come back. But that is not loving. Sin deprives you of good so that you will turn from your sin. You are supposed to, when you are in sin, realizing the good that you're not getting and go back to your father's house. 
This is the ultimate form of judgment in this life. When you are allowed to prosper in every way while sinning. That shows that you are an illegitimate child as it's written in the book of Hebrews. If you can sin and not be disciplined. That is the scariest and worst form of judgment. It's true. It means you're getting your own way. It means while the meat is still in between your teeth, God might do something. It may be a sign that the Father has given you over to your sin. Now, without going into any doctrinal dodgeball about that, what does it mean to be given over to your sin? It means you're allowed to do it without discipline. Fine, That's go what ahead. it means. Do it. Look, when you give your child everything they want, regardless of their behavior, that means that you are given over to your sin. Yeah, and it doesn't matter how old that child is, if he's 5 or 35. Usually this happens in parents that are given over to their own sin. They, they are in love with their sin. They're not receiving discipline from the Lord, and they don't discipline their kids either. This is spoken of in Romans 1, when God gives you over to your own sin. It means that there's no ability to repent and that there is no more correction from God. But you know what? I think most of us in this category fall in the category of still being connected to him because we receive cor correction on a daily basis, right? Yep. If you are receiving that correction and you still can repent, then you are not given over to your sin. That praise ought to be a level of comfort God. for you. Amen. Say praise God for correction. Praise, praise God, God for correction. Let's pick up in verse 26. Among my people are wicked men. <laughs> right, Elijah. Who lie in wait like men who snare birds, but like those who set traps to catch men. Men who snare birds, like those who set traps to catch men. We couldn't help but see into this passage as the Lord was showing it to us. Ooh. Look, all are guilty among the Israelites. The Lord's already clearly delineated that. But among the Israelites, there are certain men who are ensnaring others. This is a special kind of wickedness. Yeah. This is almost certainly a reference to religious false leaders, religious false teachers of the nation. James 3 and verse 1 says, not many of you should presume to be teachers. Presume. My brothers, <laughs> there's, that there's that question mark again, <laughs> because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That is sobering beyond a shadow of a doubt, yeah. especially tonight as we're standing up here. You shouldn't presume to be a teacher because you know that as you teach, you know that the Lord is going to be watching over His Word. Because His Word is of utmost importance. It is the highest thing on His mind and on His heart. It is what is the very standard that He is going after. And He wants the people that are saying, In the name of the Lord, uh, in God's name I'm teaching this, in God's name I'm prophesying. He necessitates that those people are actually speaking on his behalf from his word. Yeah. If you're disconnected from the Father and you're a teacher, then you will ultimately cause others to be disconnected. And you'll be held responsible for that on that day. But if, like in Psalm 91, you stay connected, Amen. you stay connected to the Father then you know because of history, because of today, and because of what you know is going to happen in the future, that your Father will protect you from the fowler's snare. Amen. Come on. 
In the interest of time, because we need to keep moving here in verse 27, we're not going to break down these next few verses that we're about to read, except to say that it's impossible to avoid the connection in their description to the present state of the average megachurch in the United States. <laughs> Let's continue in verse 27. Like cages full of birds, their houses are all full of deceit. They have become rich and powerful. They've become what? Rich and powerful. Can you hear the connection that we're uh, delineating between the regular megachurch in our day? Keep reading. And have grown fat and sleek. Their evil deeds have no limit. They do not plead the case of the fatherless to win it. They do not defend the rights of the poor. Should I not punish them for this, declares the Lord? Should I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? A horrible and shocking thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And my people love it this way. But what will you do in the end? Look, they prophesy lies. The priests rule by their own authority. And the people love it, which is really what allows it. That kind of stuff wouldn't happen if the people did not love it. In fact, the teachers are just giving them what their itching ears want to hear already. You know, that's an apt description of our time too, isn't it? We're living in the days of Jeremiah. I mean, I was driving down the street the other day and I saw a Rolls Royce with 1 John 5.4 as the license plate. You know what 1 John 5.4 says? This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Well, see, how do they have that written on their license plate when they're driving a Rolls Royce? I wonder what kind of faith that man has. I wonder what kind of prophecies that man is meditating on. But you know what? He probably wouldn't have that Rolls Royce if there were not people who loved it, loved the image he's projecting. Look, we want to end on the last sentence that God asked in this question. What will you do in the end? That's a good question, isn't it? But what will you do in the end? This is a rhetorical question. And if you don't know what a rhetorical question is, it's one that you're not supposed to answer. It's supposed to cause you to think about it. It's a rhetorical question asked by God as a way to mock them. He's saying, look, this is what's going on. Shouldn't I avenge myself? But what are you going to do about it? Saints, this is much like a parent walking a wayward child through the course of their decisions and then saying, what are you going to do with the result of this? Well, he's going to go ahead and enumerate the result of it as we pick up in 6. We get verse 1. Flee for safety, people of Benjamin. Flee from Jerusalem. Sound the trumpet in Tekoa. Raise the signal over Beth-Hakarim. For disaster <laughs> looms out of the north. Even terrible destruction. So God asks, what are you going to do? And then he says, you're going to flee and be running away. You're going to be sounding the trumpets, freaking out, and the northern kingdom is still going to come upon you because you didn't repent. Saints, he knows the end from the beginning. He's trying to lead them down a path where they will understand the result of sin, the wages of sin or death. But catch this. This is not disconnected from what we were reading earlier. We have a slide for you. Brother Linton, will you pronounce this word for me again? <laughs> yes, that's yeah. how we're going to say it. Hacker-in. All right, you ready for some English words? House of the Vineyard. On some of you traveling to Israel on trips with LCM, you will have visited this site. 
He's saying to them, you're going to be raising a signal in the place of the vineyard. You remember earlier when we were describing Israel as a vineyard and what he was going to do, that he's going to break off branches but not destroy them completely? See, Judah and Jerusalem are to the south. What is being pictured here is an invasion coming from the north that is advancing, that is coming towards them. And they're in a place where they can visibly see them coming. Jerusalem is elevated. This area that we're speaking about here is elevated. They have brought themselves to a place where God is saying, what are you going to do? He's saying, you're going to go screaming and running, and you're going to be standing up in an elevated position where you will watch judgment coming, but it's too late for you to do anything about it. And oh, by the way, it's going to happen in a place called a vineyard. Like I said, when I'm going to come clear out my vineyard. Listen, there's more at play here. There's wordplay going on between trumpet, which in this case is shofar and tekoa. On your own time, look at it, but the prophet is painting a picture. This is not a... do to do hey, let's all gather together. This is a resounding trumpet, loud sirens. It's the idea of utter chaos like a nuclear holocaust. Run and hide, flee, there's nowhere you can go. <laughs> Chapter 5, verse 31. Ask this rhetorical question. What will you do in the end? Saints, quite frankly, God is mocking them here. Listen, I don't care if that offends your sensibilities or not. If you ignore what the Lord is telling you over and over again, and then there's pain that is inflicted on your family, not by God, but by the consequences around you, he will let you know it. He will remind you. He will grind it in enough for you to learn the point. That's not because he's an unloving father. It's because he wants you to learn the lesson. He doesn't want you to repeat the same thing that brought you here. Consequence is good for us. Amen. Let's pick up in two and let's go all the way through verse six. I will destroy the daughter of Zion, so beautiful and delicate. Shepherds with their flocks will come against her. They will pitch their tents around her, each tending his own portion. Prepare for battle against her. Arise, let us attack at noon. But alas, the daylight is fading, and the shadows of e- shadows of evening grow long. So arise, let us attack at night and destroy her fortresses. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Cut down the trees and build siege ramps against Jerusalem. This city must be punished. It is filled with oppression. So he asked them, what will you do in the end? Then God said, well, what are you going to do? I'll tell you what you're going to do. Now he's saying what the enemy's going to do. It's like he knows the end from the beginning. The Lord is speaking in a rhetorical, mocking sense about what he knows the Babylonians will do. This is a form of divine punishment in that it is what the sinners in Jerusalem have brought upon themselves. God's not willing that anyone would perish. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but they brought it on themselves by ignoring God's command. This is what will happen when namely the sinful Babylon will come against them. There's something that you got to see here. It says that in verse 6, the Babylonians, they will cut down the trees. Did you see that? They will cut down the trees and build siege ramps in Jerusalem. Well, did you know that there's a prohibition against cutting down the trees in the land? Deuteronomy 20.19, go read it in your own time, is a prohibition against cutting down trees for a siege. If the people honored the word of the Lord, which is, it's the word of God that says it, But they didn't honor the word of God. 
So since they don't honor the word of God, they're not going to be protected by the word of God. And neither will the lamb. Since the people's behavior has invited a sinful predator to come and punish them, they will suffer what sinful predators do. Think about that for a second. What God is saying is these enemies who are coming against you, they don't obey my word. They do not have the same morals out of my word that you have. They don't have the same principle. My word says not to cut down trees, but these guys don't fulfill my word. How scared should you be? Yeah, come on. Look, it's a bad day whenever... Well, it's not a bad day, but it's a good day when the Lord uses someone in the church to rebuke you. It's a bad day when God uses someone who does not love the Lord to rebuke you. This is kind of akin to, you know, we have something called the Geneva Convention, the, the laws of war and engagement. You know, there are certain laws in effect that respectable nations in the UN or whatever the heck that is, that they have to obey. Like we can't use flamethrowers anymore because I guess that's just bad, Right. Judah was telling me, it's a law in the Geneva Convention. You can't use a three-sided knife in war because you can't stitch it up after the battle. You can't interrogate prisoners and all those kinds of things. What God's essentially saying, I'm going to bring an enemy against you that does not abide by the laws. You need to be terrified. We keep using the term predator or a savage predator. Deuteronomy puts a prohibition on what kind of tree you can cut down. You can't cut down fruit trees. The nation that God is bringing against his people is like a savage animal that abides by no mercy, no laws, no regulations. And he's making the point, listen, this is not two friends that are fighting that are going to be friends the next day once they heal and get over it. This is a savage beast that will devour you and it is a Gentile nation. You know, David had some commentary about this kind of situation. In 1 Chronicles 21... Verse 13, David finds himself in a situation, situation uh, that was not very good, and it was of his own doing. But look what he says in verse 13. David said to Gath, I am in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hands of men. Man, pray. Wow. Oh, that this would be our cry. Yes. When we figured out what we have done, when we find ourselves in sin, when we find ourselves in disobedience, that we would not run to the world. We would not run out of the house of God. We would not find ourselves going away from the vine, but we would find ourselves running into the presence of the Lord. For His mercy is great. His instruction, his discipline for us is what we need. And David knew that. He said, don't don't turn me over to those wicked men. Don't turn me over to those guys that don't have your law. Father, I am going to get even closer to you in these moments because I need your forgiveness. I accept your punishment for restoration. This is good for me. And I know that your judgments about this punishment will be the best for restoration in my life. Hallelujah. Brother Linton, help us out. Keep us moving. Seven through nine, man. As a will pours pours out its waters, so she pours out her wickedness. Violence and destruction resound in her. Her sickness and wounds are ever before me. Take warning, O Jerusalem, for I will turn away from you and make your land desolate so no one can live in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Let them glean the remnant of Israel as thoroughly as a vine. Pass your hand over the branches again like one gathering grapes. 
Alright, so that you begin to understand the picture, because there are many references like this. Leviticus 19 tells God's people, do not go over the vine more than once. Leave some kind of remnant. But God is again painting a picture that the nation that is coming is not like that. They're not good men. They are lawless and without God, and they will clean you dry, devour the land with nothing left. Pick up in verse 10, and we'll keep hearing this. To whom can I speak and give warning? Who will listen to me? Their ears are closed, so they cannot hear. The word of the Lord is offensive to them. They find no pleasure in it. They had uncircumcised ears. There was no word in them. They were offended with those who were full of the word of the Lord. No word in them offended with those who had the word. Now notice in the next verses the extent to which the word of the Lord in Jeremiah has made Jeremiah feel what the Lord feels. Pick up in verse 11, and you're going to see this is Jeremiah speaking his own words. Yeah, break verse 11 and a half for us. But I am full of the wrath of the Lord, and I cannot hold it in. That's Jeremiah speaking right there. You have to picture Jeremiah speaking to the Lord saying, I'm full of your wrath, mighty God, and I can't hold it in. But look at the Lord's response. Think about what it might be. Now listen to Justin Linson as he reads it. Pour it out on the children in the street and on the young men gathered together. Both husband and wife will be caught in it, and the old, those weighed down with years. Jeremiah has been interacting with the word of God. He's been wrestling at the beginning of this chapter with his own emotions, with his own apprehensions, even with his own assumptions about what God should be feeling and what his word should say. Except now he's had an interaction with it. Come on. Yeah. Now he understands what it actually says. And as the word is revealed to him, so his emotions are lining up with his God as well. Come on. Pour it out is what the Lord says. Not relax. Not hold it in. Not process it. How many times have you made that mistake? You get the word of the Lord. You begin to feel something and then, wait, I just need to, whoa, I need to back up from this for a moment. <laughs> How many times have you been in worship? Set a fire down in my soul that I can't contain, that I can't control. Do you really want that? Because when you begin to interact with the word on this kind of level, then your emotions get in line with the emotions of your God. And you better be prepared for what's to come. Hey, by the way, the Hebrew word wrath is the same word as the Hebrew word for fire. So Jeremiah is saying, I am full of the fire of the Lord, and I cannot hold it in. Man, you want God to set a fire in your soul? You better be ready for Him to pour it in you as you are pouring it into everyone around you. Pick up in verse 12 and keep reading. Their houses will be turned over to others, together with their fields and their wives. Alright, I can't, I can't stop on this. <laughs> but you remember when they were lusting after other men's wives? Yeah. You see the end result of sin? God is giving their wives to other men because they weren't content with what they had and they wanted someone else's. That's not our larger point, so keep reading. When I stretch out my hand, From the least to the greatest, all are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike, all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Are they ashamed of their loathsome conduct? No, 
They have no shame at all. They do not even know how to blush. So they will fall among the fallen. They will be brought down when I punish them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. So saints, in a majority context, this generation would not walk in it. The priests, the leaders, they address their wounds as if they were not serious. I don't need to take the time to draw parallels to common preaching. But saints, there were generations that did. In fact, Matthew eleven twenty eight speaks about coming to him. You who are weary, who are heavy laden. And Jews did come to him. Yes. Jews that had previously burst their bonds, who knew the context of Jeremiah speaking about such events, responded to the Messiah and reconnected to the one on. true yes. vine. Saints, what we want to do this evening, and we have been pushing to get here, yeah. it's been the balance of our time talking to you about the ancient pathways so that you can walk in it. So that we participate in the generation that gets it right, that understands them, that sees them, and knows how to proceed in them. I'm going to pick up reading in Deuteronomy 4, 29 through 38, or through 37, and Justin's going to comment on it. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, You will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you in regard to judgments, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. Praise the Lord. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them on oath. Notice the covenant. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created man on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and lived? Has any other God tried to take for himself one nation out of another? by testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord God, besides him, there is no other. From heaven he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth he showed you his great fire, And you heard his words from out of the fire because he loved your forefathers and chose their descendants after them. He brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength. Come on, y'all with us? Yeah. Yeah. Did you hear how in this passage God is telling them when these things come upon you in the future, look toward the past. Look at all of the things I have done in the past. And ask yourself, has this ever been done before? Look, being at a crossroads and considering what has come before you, where you stand now, and how it informs your future are important biblical applications emphasized in the prophets. When you're at a crossroads, you consider what's going on 
You look to the past and you see how it informs where you are headed. Every Israelite should consider that from the creation of man on earth. Adonai has never dealt with another nation like he has favored Israel. That's right. Every Israelite's being asked just to consider that. That was in verse 32. In verse 35, God makes the point that they would be uniquely his. This was, is, and always will be based on God's promises to the patriarchs. That singular covenant that's mentioned in verse 37. We're going to be talking about the ancient paths, but you need to know something. Whatever else the ancient paths are, I know when we say that you've got a lot of things going on in your mind. What are the ancient paths? Whatever else the ancient paths are, and it means a lot. This is the most important facet right here in this passage. The ancient path is marked by God's dealing with Israel. Do you see how foundational the last four chapters and yesterday's message has been preparing you to understand this? How God deals with Israel marks his ancient path for all humanity. Now, we're not going to draw too many personal applications by this. But if I were, I would ask you. You were dramatically saved, weren't you? Yes. You know how many weren't? Most will enter through the wide gate. You were radically saved, weren't you? Yes. Are you still on that good path? Are you still looking back to see what's happened in your life? Is that looking back informing your future and what's going to happen then? Come on. That's what's being considered here. Look, we're going to go to Deuteronomy 32, verse 7 through 12. And Nick's going to read it. But that passage is about Moses. And Moses is speaking about earlier times. So Moses was a long time ago, right? 1600 B.C., 3,600 years ago. And Moses is going to speak about earlier times than that. It's interesting because the earlier times that we're talking about happen to be at the Tower of Babel, which is pivotal in this chapter. So listen closely. The words of Moses here in about 1600 B.C. speaking about earlier times. Yeah. Listen to what he From highlights for the people where he's standing. Remember the days of old. It's what we're trying to get you to do tonight. Remember the days of old. What was old in Moses' day? <laughs> yeah. yeah dude. Precisely. Consider the generations long past. Ask your father and he will tell you. Your elders and they will explain it to you. Yeah, they will. Come Praise on. God for godly elders. Yeah. Yes. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob has allotted inheritance. In a desert land he found him. Now he's going all the way back. Yeah. In a barren and howling waste, he shielded him and cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up his nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. The Lord alone led him. No foreign god was with him. Come on. From ancient times, all the way back to Babel, all the way back earlier than that, the Lord has always dealt differently 
with Israel than every other nation, even before they were a formal nation. In fact, they're the only nation that he declares that are his portion and his inheritance. They're the Lord's alone in this sense. Did you catch that? No foreign God was with me. There was no one else standing beside me. It was Israel, my son, and it was me, their God. And I was leading them from the very beginning. The mystery revealed in latter times. Somebody say latter times. Latter times. It was about the Gentiles. But it did not remove this foundational element of the ancient path. We hope that you guys are getting this. Yeah. Yeah. You got to go all the way back to the ancient path. You got to go all the way back to the beginning to truly understand the progression of this revelation. Your inclusion, your personal inclusion, it will never be to their exclusion. Come on. Yeah. We're going to read 2 Peter 2 4 through 6. I'll, I'll have Judah get that for us. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, Yes, angels sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. Saints, if Moses is talking about ancient days, the context for Moses is going to be prior to God bringing his people out of Egypt in days long ago. Come on. Peter's commenting on this same kind of time frame. The ancient world to the writer was prior to the flood. A day when angels had sinned. But certainly, one facet of ancient paths is that God will destroy the whole world. Except for a very small remnant. And he will, can, and has rebuilt it exactly as he designed it to be when it got off track. He's able to preserve a righteous remnant no matter the judgment that is going down. We have reason for confidence in the God that we serve. Revelation 20 is our next one. So Revelation 20, 1 through 3, is speaking about a deviant path that existed before Eden. So you can see we're going back further and further and further. It says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Certainly, one facet of the ancient paths is that there is a historic enemy calling into question God's word. When you study the ancient paths, you see there has been an ancient enemy who is always calling into question what God is saying. Then he asserts that God's word is not true. Then he is suggesting, tempting you to take another path. You saw that in the garden, didn't you? Yeah. Now look, this obviously started in Eden. But the same thing happens when we call into question God's word about Israel or assert that God's word is not true for Israel Or we are tempted to take another path than the Bible states about Israel. When you do that, you are aligning yourself with an ancient enemy, my friends. Look, there are many ancient paths, but there is only one good way. Come on. We're going to read Jeremiah 18, 15. And this is warning the nation that the ancient path was revealed to. Jeremiah is acknowledging that there were deviant ancient paths. 
Y'all following? There is one path that leads to the Lord, but there are many ancient paths that have been created. As we get ready for Jeremiah 18, this recording is passed around the one association and we want to make clear the events described in Revelation 20 are yet to come. 100% that is a future event that we are greatly looking forward to because right now he's prowling around like a lion as Peter says. But that ancient serpent was a deviant way as Justin said all the way back to Genesis 3. And that same power has existed on the earth. Jeremiah 18 is going to expound on that concept. It's going to expound, and what Justin said is pivotal. There are many ancient paths, but only one good way. Jeremiah 18 is going to talk about some of those deviant ancient paths. And verse 15 says, Yet my people have forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless idols, which made them stumble in their ways and in the ancient paths. They made them walk in bypaths. Somebody say bypaths. Bypaths. And on roads not built up. These bypaths, these are alternative paths to the way in which the people of God should walk. Bypaths are roads that are not built up. So I want you to picture something. I want you to picture the highway. I want you to picture the ancient path, the good way. And beside it, I want you to picture these ditches that are running alongside. Like a Houston feeder road when it rains just a little bit. Any of you ever seen that Houston feeder road? I mean, it's disgusting. It's like trenches alongside the road or the freeway that you're on. There's trash in there. There's junk in there. It's full of refuse and pollution. Can you make a connection here between how close you can be to the ancient path, yeah. but not be on it. Yeah. I mean, goodness, if we were using Google Maps, or God forbid, <laughs> Apple Maps in this place, if we were on that, then it would think that we were on this ancient path, even if we were on the bypath. They're so close, they run in the same kind of direction, right beside each other, but they are vastly different. Come on. There are many, many things that are reference points on the ancient paths. They're like markers. They're like road signs along the way. We're going to reference a few tonight and thank God for the pastors. They're going to spend the next 40 days that we have expounding upon them in the teaching series that we're in right now, Ancient Paths. So what we're saying is we're causing trouble right now and our gracious pastors are going to spend 40 days cleaning it up. (laughs) But are you interested? I mean, what all might we talk about? Who knows? Ancient paths can go a lot of different directions. One of the first things we want to share with you is about mountains. Mountains represent things in the Bible that get very, very interesting. Genesis 49, verse 26. Jacob's blessing to his son Joseph is a favorite of many of the men in the room. But we're focusing on different mountains today. Your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains. Somebody say ancient mountains. Ancient mountains. Then the bounty of the age-old hills. Like all these, let all these rest on the head of Joseph on the brow of the prince among his brothers. The blessings spoken by Jacob to Joseph, they're better than the blessings that sinful men in previous times had sought after on ancient mountains. Since we're going to expound upon this, 
but men had been seeking out blessings in certain localities in the biblical worldview that were ancient mountains. And Jacob's telling his son, what I have that my father, my God gave me, it's better than everything they had. Consider what would be ancient in Jacob's day. Perhaps we're referencing some pre-Adamite stuff going on. Look, what Moses is about to say in Deuteronomy 33, 13 through 16 he says to, about the tribe of Joseph, about the collection of Joseph. It was split into two uh, half-tribes. But it's hundreds of years later, and hear how it's referred to. Look, if Jacob is speaking to Joseph about ancient mountains, what do you think Moses is going to speak to the tribe of Joseph about? Ancient mountains. Ancient mountains. Deuteronomy 33, verse 13 says, About Joseph, he said, May the Lord bless his land with the precious dew from heaven above, and with deep waters that lie below, with the best the sun brings forth, and the finest the moon can yield, with the choicest gifts on the ancient mountains and the fruitfulness of the everlasting hills, with the best gifts of the earth and its fullness, and with favor of him who dwelt in the burning bush. Let all these rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the prince among his brothers." Look, in times prior to the patriarchs, men sought blessing by interacting with celestial powers on Mount Hermon. You guys remember the celestial powers teaching? Yeah. In Genesis 49, Jacob was telling his son that the blessing given to him was better than the blessings that those men sought after. Now, in Deuteronomy 32, in the time of Moses, Israel interacted with the one true God on the ancient mountain Sinai. Oh, come on now. Their blessing was better than what others received on ancient mountains. Other nations were getting blessings on blessings on ancient mountains, and God says, "Hey, I'm going to do the same thing for my people, but it's going to be entirely different. You come up to my ancient mountain, I'll give you my word in the fire." If you want to see more of that, read Psalm 68, read Ephesians 4. Go to our celestial powers teachings for the contrast between these. Two mountains. The ancient paths, good and bad, are marked by mountain experiences. Whether you're on the right path or the bad, mountains are markers on the ancient path. Look, the next one. We're going to see people are markers of the ancient path. You ready to hear about some ancient people? Yeah. <laughs> I know you've seen some. Isaiah 44, 6 through 7. This is what the Lord says. Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Man, I love when the Lord begins to speak this way. <laughs> yeah. Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay it out before me. What has happened since I established my ancient people? Ooh. And what is yet to come? Yeah. Yes, let him foretell what will come. I love that the Lord has had a plan from the very beginning, and he is straight up mocking powers and principalities and anybody who would dare stand next to him. And he's saying, hey, I've had this plan. Let's see if you know what I'm going to do next. Let's see if you know what I've got in my purview. Foretell it to me. Tell the future. Tell me what I'm going to do next. The ancient path that our God has is marked by his ancient people. It's established by the Lord himself. Yeah. Come on. They are witnesses to what he has 
what is and what will happen on his planet. All right, y'all ready for another ancient topic? Yes. I know you're going to guess this one. Doors. There's ancient doors? Ancient doors. What? No, Natalie Eregina has an entire wall dedicated to ancient doors. <laughs> and it's fantastic. She did a great job designing it. It looks cool it's from different places in the world. But this is a different kind of ancient door. It's a very specific one. Psalm 24, picking up in verse 7. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Come on. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he? Saints, who is he? Jesus. Who is he, the King of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the King of glory. Saints, there are many ancient doors, but there's only one that would receive the true King of Israel, who is victorious in battle, the Lord Almighty. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those who are crying out for Messiah to return he would be returning in a very specific place, in a singular gate. Can you guess what gate that is? Anybody? It's not the west. It's the east gate in Jerusalem. There is an ancient gate that he specifically says, as a marker in time, you will know, because I'm going to come back and I'm coming to my city through that door. It's a little bit like saying I'm coming home, and you'll know it because I'm walking through Straight ahead, right there, no ambiguity. It's a marker for us of our king of glory, when he will return and how he will do it. It's in a very specific city, in a specific gate, that are ancient paths that mark what will happen, that inform us now by looking at the past, what we should be doing here, and what will happen in the future. Hey, anybody play life? You know, the board game? Yeah. You can tell what part of the board you're on by what's the surroundings of the board game. You can tell what's happening on the path because there are markers. These ancient indicators and markers are telling you where we are in the path. The next one we want to share with you are laws. Laws being a marker of where we are in the path. Look, Psalm 119, verse 52, verse 53 says, I remember your ancient laws, O Lord. Ancient laws. Not new laws, not ones you've done away with, ancient laws. And I find, not sadness, comfort in them. Indignation grips me because of the wicked who have forsaken your law. Look, in the Peshat, this verse is saying how one responds to the ancient laws is a marker to which of the ancient paths they are on. The ancient laws clearly define and tell you whether you're on the ancient path of life or the ancient path of death, which both run simultaneously parallel. In your own time, study the eternal and ancient nature of God's laws. Your view of the eternal law is indicative of your state on your path. If you don't think they're eternal and they're done away with, Well, perhaps you're on a path that's not eternal and we're about to be done away with. Some of you are going to recognize this. Some of you aren't. Teaching between the trees. His law goes outside the trees. Spend enough time looking at it. It has nothing to do with your present context and yet everything. (laughs) Yes. 
Yeah, let's move on to ancient boundary stones. Proverbs 22 and verse 28. Do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your forefathers. These ancient boundary stones, they're monuments, they're markers, they're inheritances that have been set up from ancient times and their function is to outline the ancient past. They're set up every so often along the ancient past so that you know, ah, I'm still walking along the ancient path, praise God. <laughs> Examples like boundary stones set up at the Red Sea. Boundary stones set up at the Jordan. Even if we think about Jacob and Laban and what happened as those two men spoke to each other, mm -hmm. boundary stones were set up there. Yeah. Even the Transjordan tribes set up boundary stones. And they were all monuments marking specific milestones along the way. These are references, they're waypoints in order to inform the travels of God's people. The admonition from heaven, the takeaway for ancient boundary stones, never adjust them. No matter how tempted you are, no matter how tempted you are to fit your own theology, or whatever other reason you have, ancient boundary stones are not touched. They are waypoints along the way to make sure that those who are behind us, with us, and in front of us are walking along the ancient path. That's a good word. Right? Times is our next category. Ancient times. Isaiah 46, 10. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Many of the markers along the way were set in ancient times to inform our present and give us hope for what is to come. He knew the end from the beginning and set up markers in the beginning from ancient times. Wow that would be there for all men and all generations to know where they are at on the path. Come on, man. It's almost as if he knew that each generation would have to learn to cry out to the Lord. When God speaks something in advance, it gives you markers of where you are between the events, where you're at between the trees, what God is calling from you and what must be done. This should be reminiscent of men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what Israel must do in their day. Yes. They fought to see David brought to the kingship. Appointed times from the beginning were given by God as markers to what he had said in advance. Let's read this again. My purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Yeah. He has not left himself without testimony in any generation. Yeah. And he does it from ancient times anticipating that we're going to need it. Yeah. Let's keep going to Micah 5.2. Micah 5.2, you're going to see one of the coolest examples of ancient times that God is using here. It says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you were small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Yeah. Man, the fact that he said this in Micah's day, which is 700 B.C., it allows them to know wherever they are headed in their future. Yeah. It gives them insight into where the ancient path is going. Amen. When Assyria, Babylon, the Greeks, oh, the on. Romans, the Muslims, yeah. the Ottomans, when everybody was invading Israel, 
They still had hope because of what God said in ancient times. Amen. It doesn't matter what things look like now. Man, you ought to draw hope in that. Yeah. It does not matter what things look like in the present. You know what happened in the past. It is happening now, and it will happen in the future. You know that from the marker of ancient times. Seeing that a ruler was born there also lets you know that the rest of the prophecies that are spoken in, in Micah will still happen. It has a way of fulfilling the rest of the book for us. Because this was spoken in ancient times, it is still going to occur. Judah's going to read Isaiah 58, verse 12, and we're also going to couple that with Isaiah 61, 4 through 6, with ancient ruins. So in ancient ruins, I'm just narrating, but we want to join these two passages in your mind. Isaiah 58, 12. Your people, Israel, your people, will rebuild the ancient ruins, and you will raise up the age-old foundation. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Just a few chapters later in Isaiah 61, verse 4, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. You will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of the nations and in the riches you will boast. You know they're still discovering these ancient ruins yeah. in the land of Israel today? Yeah. Yeah. They're still digging them up everywhere and every time they... What is it, uh, Treaster? Is it about 300 or 350 it's ancient cities? About 350 so far. So about 350 actual plots of land where they found ancient ruins of cities that are verifiable in the word of God. These ancient ruins are pointing us straight back to what all these other ancient components are pointing us back to. They're markers of the ancient past. Look, they're ruined today, but that's not how they're going to stay. Because they're ruined today, we know that there will be a restoration, and we're on the right path to restoration. Come on. God said that they would be restored, so we know for a fact that we're walking in the right way. They help you understand where Israel and you with them are on that ancient path. Yeah, I, I can tell you, having gone to Israel, and many of you have, that's one of the first thoughts that come through your mind when you're seeing all these ancient ruins, yeah. is man, the ancient path hasn't reached the end yet, but I can't wait till it does. Yeah. Oh, I want to be a part of it on that ancient path. Alright, you ready for the secret to all Middle Eastern geopolitics and <laughs> issues related to them? Oh, yeah. It's called ancient hostilities. It has nothing to do with what Nancy Pelosi says. <laughs> Brother Nick, if you would help yeah. me out and get Ezekiel 25, 15 through 17. Justin, if you get Exodus 17, 14, and I will get Numbers 24, 20. All right. The first scripture is Ezekiel 25, 15 through 17 on ancient hostilities. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Because the Philistines acted in vengeance and took revenge with malice in their hearts and with ancient hostility... Sought to destroy Judah. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I am about to stretch out my hand against the Philistines. And I will cut off the Carathites. And destroy those remaining along the coast. I will carry out great vengeance on them. And punish them in my wrath. Then they will know that I am the Lord when I take vengeance on them. 
Exodus 17, 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this down. There you go, Spence. Write it on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it because I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Here, Numbers 24, 20. Then Balaam saw Amalek and uttered his oracle. Amalek was first among the nations. Think back to our pre-time in Genesis. But he will come to ruin at last. Look, the fact that these ancient markers are still there, these ancient hostilities with different people groups that still exist today in the Middle East shows you that we have a lot further to go on the ancient path prior to this being restored. It's not fixed yet. The son of David has not returned. Listen, we want you to forget specific nations for a minute. Forget specific people groups, ethnicities. It seems to be all the world is concerned about right now. This is about ancient heavenly hostilities. We're going all the way back to celestial powers here. There are hostilities that exist in those people groups, in those areas, no matter who's living there, because there is a spiritual power that is hostile towards God and his people. These ancient hostilities are from days of old, and they just happen to show up in the exact same places as they did in ancient times. Imagine that. It's almost as if there's an ancient hostility that is spiritual enemies against God that doesn't go away when men die. But these are markers for us because God promises that he will fix it. That Assyria, all the way to Israel, all the way to Egypt, will have a highway between them and peace will reign when the son of David returns. Our next topic is heights. So Ezekiel 36, verse 2. Man, you guys didn't know there was this many ancient paths, did you? You guys didn't know there were this many indicators and markers of the ancient path. Ezekiel 36, verse 2 says... This is what the Sovereign Lord says. The enemy said of you, Aha! The ancient heights have become our possession. Look, as long as there is an enemy that is trying to take the ancient heights of Zion, then we haven't completed the ancient path. We can see where we're going. We can see what's going to happen, but we haven't completed it yet because there are still enemies trying to take those ancient paths. Look, the next one we're going to get into is the ancient serpent. You guys are all curious about that, right? Yeah. Revelation 12, verse 9, and then we'll go to verse 17. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Go down to verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. You want to know something? As long as the ancient serpent continues to make war on the woman, Israel, and her children, then the ancient path has not been completed yet. Come on. It's not done because we still have an ancient serpent and he's still at war to this day on Israel. Hence, all the conflicts in that part of the world. Hence, all the opposition up to this day. And we know that it will continue. Of course, we can do this all night long. (laughs) We can talk about ancient things all night long that mark the ancient path. But there can be no better marker of the ancient path 
than to look at the Ancient of Days. I want everybody to breathe with me. <gasps> We're breathing because it's 922 and we have gotten to our last verse. You have no idea how much pressure that was for us. You guys are here. You're alive. You're awake. And you know what we're about to cover? The Ancient of Days. I mean, we're talking about what the whole word is aiming at. We're talking about our God being made manifest. Are you ready for this? I have a little surprise for you. We're not going to Daniel 7 tonight. We're going to do Isaiah 43, 6 through 13. I'm going to read it, and I'm going to take you down to verse 13. Then I'm going to shut up because I'm tired and my brothers are better at speaking than I am anyway. You ready? I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons. In context, this is Israel from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Anyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Saints, he is talking about Israel and no one else in this context. But then he also says, anyone who is called by my name. The idea here is those that have been called by the same name as those that follow the God of Israel are included together with him. We are saved by the son of David, but never without Israel. He's calling them from destruction, calling them from off in the distance. But this has always been his plan. He's announcing in advance, I'm going to do this. Verse 8, lead out those who have eyes but are blind, who have ears but are deaf. Saints, catch this in light of what we're reading tonight in Jeremiah 5. They got that way by their own sin and idolatry. Those who are deaf, those who are blind, are that way because they worship idols that are deaf and blind and have no power to save. But saints, hear what he says. He will lead them out. He will cure them. He will save them. The fact that they are deaf and blind will not prevent him from rescuing them in the end. Yeah. Verse 9. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Which of them foretold this and proclaimed to us the former things? Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right. So that others may hear and say, it is true. God is challenging the nations to see if any of them, any of them, understood the ancient path and could proclaim it. Come on. Saints, this is a God who's infinitely confident for reason. We have infinite reason for confidence in him. Don't expect our nation or any other to understand what God is doing or what needs to be done in a situation. He's looking at them all and saying, gather together, have a little committee, talk it over. And tell me whether or not you can answer me. Because I knew what I was going to do from the very beginning. Verse 10 is beautiful. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, Mm. and my servant whom I have chosen. Not the nations, but you. So that you may know and believe and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. He's declaring that there is only one nation. Israel, that is a witness to his ancient path. We become witnesses along with them as we are included in Messiah. Man, that could not be preached enough. Verse 11. I, even I, am the Lord. And apart from me, there is no Savior. 
I have revealed and saved and proclaimed. I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses. Man, he's saying it again, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days, I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand when I act. Who can reverse it? They, the nation that he chose from ancient days, they are proof that he announced the ancient path. They are proof that he corrected him, corrected them on the path and that they will arrive when the ancient path is completed. Now that is pashatly stated in this verse. Look, I want to cue you into something. That word ancient of days, in Hebrew it says something like before the days. So it's less of a title for himself and he's saying, I before the days. I before the day. You know what God is saying out of that? God is saying that I existed before there were days. I existed before there were days and I had this plan and you are my servants, my witnesses, Israel, and you are a part of a plan that was there before days. You are a part of an ancient path that I started before time itself. Come on. The people on the ancient path is proof of his character as the ancient of days. You need to let that sink in for a second. The fact that there is an Israel now that is on the ancient path now is proof of his character as the ancient of days. When you hear the word ancient of days, you ought to be thinking the God who sustains Israel, his people. It is the proof of his existence. You want to know one of the strangest things to ever encounter? You ready for it? An atheist in Israel. (laughs) A Jewish atheist in Israel. You know what I tell them? How in the world can you be an atheist whenever this happened in 1948? How in the world can you be an atheist when this happened in 1967 and 1972? Proof of his existence is the nation themselves. And they are the proof of his workings on earth. They are the proof of the ancient path. Look, this word ancient of days, it's a very complex word. In Hebrew, it's meom. It means from the day. The translators have a little bit of trouble trying to translate this. So when you read different translations, you get a little bit of a different uh, understanding of what's going on here. In the NASB, it says, from, the, from eternity, I am he. You know what that's referring to? The past. From, the, from eternity in the past, I am he. I am he who has done this for Israel. You know what the Young's literal translation says? From the day, I am he. That's referring to the present tense. He's saying, I am he from eternity back then. From Alpha, from Aleph eternity, I am he, and I am he now. The ESV translates it like this. Henceforth, I am he. In the future, I am he. I was he in the past. I am he now, and I always will be he. Come on. It's like Moses saying, what is your name that I can tell the Israelites who sent me? And he gives them some kind of complex word that's like, I am who I am. I was who I was, and I will be who I always will be. 
He is the Ancient of Days. And his character, promises, Come on. and no. his nature is in of itself a marker of the ancient path. Amen. You want to know what the ancient path is? Look at him, Amen. the Ancient of Days. We want to tell you tonight, and the Nick's going to close, that the ancient paths inform us of what has happened in the past, what is happening in our future, and what, I'm sorry, what is happening in our present time, and what will happen in future days. When we're talking about the ancient paths, you may think of biblical prophecy, you may think of the whole counsel of the word of God, but what really the ancient path is, is showing us what God has done in the past through his servants Israel, what God is doing in our times now, and what will happen in future days. Man, that's comforting, isn't it? Yeah. Look, in the coming days, we're actually going to get to apply what Moses said in Deuteronomy. This is what I have done from the beginning, but you aren't there. Ask your fathers, ask the elders, and they will tell you. We're going to get to put that into practice because our fathers and elders are going to take the next 40 days to show us what has happened on the ancient Amen. path. The key is, if you want to know what the future is like, look at what, is God, look what God has done in the past. That is true for Israel. That is true for the world. That is true for the nations, and it's also true for you. You want to know what the outcome of your life will look at? Look what God has done in the past. No doubt there have been bumpy parts of that path in your life. But boy, I bet you're a lot further than you are than you were 10 years ago, aren't you? That's true. Man, think of the ancient times in your life. That'll tell you what the future holds for you. Man, we're excited about these next 40 days. Yes. We're excited to walk through them together. Since ancient times, there have been many deviations from that ancient path. Those bypass that we talked about earlier. The ones that were so, oh, so close. People didn't know that they were walking through the sludge of the earth. They didn't realize whether they were deceived or wi willingly or not. They were along the bypass, walking through the muck and the mire. But they were so close and yet so far. Tonight, the Lord's given us a direction yeah. along ancient paths and these ancient Markers and milestones along the path to help us find it, stick to it, and to continue to walk to it as long as we possibly live on this planet. Amen. Something that will enable us to teach those coming after us to find the ancient path themselves. To teach them what it looks like. To teach them how to walk upon it. We have reasons for confidence tonight because as we look back on God's nation of Israel... As we look back on his faithfulness to lay these milestones down along the path, on his faithfulness to illuminate the pathway to them, we know that we will arrive on that same ancient path that he intends for us. Amen. We will learn to look at the past and see what God has done to know where the right path is leading and to know what we must do. We're going on these ancient paths so that we can hone in and become more precise yeah. as God's body about what he's done, what he's doing now, and he's going to open up our eyes to what he wants to do in the future. Yeah. This doesn't just apply to you right now. This goes so much deeper into the generations that are coming after us. Yeah. 
what he's doing right now in these first hundred days and with the revelation that he's going to give us, you don't even understand sitting here at this point how it's going to affect your children and your children's children to come. He's going to show those ancient paths to us. And as we get the revelation, as we begin to walk on them and teach our children to do the same thing, life is going to come forth from you, from your family, and from this place like never before. Stand with us. Saints, just before we pray, I want to remind you what our pastor shared with us on Sunday. I think it's fitting in this moment. The old wine is... Thanks, we're done with the cheap box wine. We're going to start drinking of the good stuff. Amen. We're not going to accept new age counterfeits. We're not going to accept cheap knockoffs of the real thing. Come on, that's good. Jesus deserves better. And we're capable of better. God has been preparing you by working in your home, in your marriage, by working in your home, in your parenting, by working in your home, by cultivating storehouses of gratefulness so that we might be able to drink of the cup that Christ is offering us. The old wine is better. And we will drink of that cup but it will be the cup of the cross. It's going to be the exact same kind of interaction that the disciples had. They knew they needed to. They knew that they wanted to. And they didn't know all that it was going to entail. But their Savior did. Listen to me, those of you that are scared, and I can see it in your eyes. The Lord is telling us we will drink of His cup. He will bring us along. We will fight. We will... Endure, and we will do it with storehouses of gratefulness, welding together, raising up a new generation. And there will be bumps along the way. We are engaged in spiritual warfare. But our king will bring us to the place where we're drinking of the same ancient wine that his son did. Let's pray together. Father, you are so good to your people, Israel. Yes, mighty King. Father, we are overcome with gratefulness as we look into your word tonight and we see your faithfulness to your people, mighty God. Lord, we get our foundations laid correctly tonight, Lord. It is for them first, Lord God, and our hearts burn for them tonight, Lord. Our hearts burn for their future salvation, for their future foundations, mighty God. Lord, it is our great joy to drink the same cup that they drank and that they will drink. It is our joy to drink the same cup of ancient wine that your Son and our Messiah has drank, Lord God. Father, we long to be with you. We long to stand next to you. We long to run along that ancient path, Lord God, free and clear to run with all of your strength working inside of us, mighty God. It is our greatest joy, Lord God. It it is our greatest pleasure, Lord, to run alongside our brothers tonight. Lord, we glorify your name, and our excitement, Lord, is overflowing. In the name of Messiah Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Don't you, don't you remember sitting next to me? I need someone to watch the movie and say, you need something.